And we are starting a new series tonight, and it's going to stretch all the way until Advent, which are the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And we're just going to start with the prologue, which just means the, the opening of the letter. Okay, uh, John wrote this book. John is the author of the Gospel of John. He's the author of First, Second, and Third John, and he's the author of the book of Revelation. Okay, that same John, he wrote a, a, an epistle that is called First John. And there are many, many, many themes in this book. And John kind of like runs around, comes back, goes, goes forward, comes back, goes forward. Uh, but here's a few themes that this book is about. Number one, it's about Jesus, okay? John shows Jesus uh, in many different attributes. He shows him uh, as he knew him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's who John calls himself in the gospel. So when you read John's gospel and you hear the disciple whom Jesus loved, John is referring to himself. Okay? He never refers to the apostle John or John the disciple. He always says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Okay? And so he, he expounds on this Jesus who he was just amazed loved him. And he then uh, expounds on the love of Jesus and the love of God in this book. So 1 John is, is all about love. Okay, that's one of the main themes. Another theme is light, and, and thus the, the graphic here. Okay? God is light. There are, there are a few statements in the Bible that says God is something. Okay? And in this book, you have God is light, and God is love. In fact, 1 John 1, 5, which I won't preach on and I won't spend a lot of time on because Pete's got it next week. This is the message we heard from him, him being Jesus. And now we proclaim it to you. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. God is light. It's one of the major themes. And then another theme is, is assurance, eternal security, assurance that you are a believer and assurance that you belong to God, uh, not insurance, assurance. I am sure that I belong to Jesus. I know for sure that I am his and he is mine. Assurance, okay? That's also what this book is about. Now, when we, when we think about light as a theme, okay, God is light, uh, John in his gospel, and especially in 1 John, likes to contrast light and darkness. Now, in some sense, he is talking about what we think of when the lights go out and it's very dark, and then when the lights come on and it brightens up. He is thinking about that. But more primarily, he's thinking about purity, moral purity, what is good, what is beautiful, what is lovely and what is evil, what is dark, and what is sinful. And so God, being light, there is no evil in him. There is no darkness in him in the evil moral sense. God is 100% pure, and he is the definition of what is right. Without God being the highest determiner of right and wrong, we would not know what is right and wrong. So. Though the world says this is right and this is wrong and this is acceptable and this is unacceptable, we need a high standard, in fact, a highest standard to declare what is right and what is wrong. And God is that standard. And the standard of right and wrong, if you will, emanates out of his being. Okay, let me say that a different way. 
God's character is on display when he says this is right and this is wrong. The rightness and wrongness or morality itself points to God in his essence, in his being, in his holiness, in his light from darkness. Now, that is the primary sense, I think, which this means, okay? And people open that up next week. But I am always intrigued when I read the Bible that God is not just morally light, but also what we think of as brightness, okay? This is all through the scriptures. So Paul, writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, he's about to close out his first letter. He says this, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, now the he here in 15 switches to God the Father, and we know this because of the end of uh, verse 16. So he, God, will display at the proper time, okay? God will display Christ at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Okay? Now, now that phrase there, God dwells in unapproachable light, does mean moral unapproachable light, but it also means like If you stare at the sun too long, it damages your eyes and can damage them permanently. Now imagine standing in the presence of the being who powers the sun, okay? That being who gives the sun its energy to produce the light that it does. You being so far away, it can burn your eyes. Imagine standing in the presence of the one who gives the power to the sun. And so God dwells in this unapproachable light. And here's the good news for Christians. One day in our resurrected form, we will get to stand in that unapproachable light and approach God because he will enable us to do so. Now in our sinful state, we can't even look upon him and live. If you remember in Exodus, Moses approaches God and he says, let me see your glory. And he's like, look, you you can't, Moses. You will disintegrate. You you cannot look upon me and live. It is impossible for you. Like it's impossible for me to fly as much as I'd like to or breathe underwater like a fish. It's impossible, Moses, for you to be in my presence and still be a living being. I would consume you. You can't do it, Moses. But I'll tell you what I'll do, Moses. I'll shield you to the degree that you can be in my presence. And you remember what happened to Moses after that. He comes down off the mountain and he himself is what? Glowing with light. Like when you plug a nightlight in and it illumines the room, Moses illumines a dark room. Why? Because he's in the presence of light itself. It's amazing, okay? And God dwells in this unapproachable light. Here's one more and then I'm done, okay? Paul, the apostle, is not Paul yet. He's Saul and he's hunting Christians. And God shows up, Jesus being God, And look how he shows up. Now he, Paul, went on his way. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now you remember the story after this. Paul is blinded by this light. He can't see. His companions need to uh, take him by the hand and drag him around. And the only time that he's able to see is after Ananias, the prophet, puts his hands on him and prays for him, okay? And then if you read into Galatians, uh, he, he talks about writing with large letters at the end of the book, 
okay? And so Paul has an eye problem after that, okay? And, and, and maybe Pete will get into that a little bit. But anyway, these are two passages that I wanted to show you that God is not just moral, purity, holiness, the absence of sin and darkness, but he's also in some sense the essence of light itself, okay? Light did not pre-exist God, but God pre-exists light, and what we know of light is what God dwells in. And nothing exists outside of God's sustaining it, making it, creating it. Now, we don't know what God is other than spirit, but we don't know what spirit is exactly. Okay, so is spirit some kind of light? We don't know, okay? And, I'm, and I don't want to do that right now. That's for a podcast later in the future, okay? So here's what I want to do. I want to unpack um, the first four verses for you. Okay, so let's begin to do that now. We're just going to do four verses, and we're done. This is the prologue to 1 John. John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Okay, that's amazing. Now, what John is saying here is, look, I myself, personally, I've seen God. And not only have I seen God, but I've touched God. I've embraced God, and God embraced me. I heard him speak with my own ears, and now I'm here to tell you about him. Now, does that exactly say that? Well, yes, if you match that very first line with Genesis 1.1 and John 1, 1 to 5. And so, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember, John wrote the Gospel of John. In the beginning, notice that in the beginning, was the Word. Capital W, Logos, this is, uh, Jesus is embodied here as the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That which was from the beginning. John is intentionally drawing our thinking, biblical Christians, um, those familiar with the 39 books of the Old Testament, when you heard that which was from the beginning, you would be thinking Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, okay? Remember, word, logos, same word. Word of life, what does that mean? Jesus himself spoke all things into existence. That's what we just read. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Verse two, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. Now, if something is made manifest, what does that mean? We don't, we don't often say that. Okay? If, if there was a spirit in the room here, 
let's say, a, a, what we know, normally think of as ghosts, okay? If there was a ghost or a demon or an angel, perhaps, spirit, we would not see them because they're invisible. But what happens often in the scriptures is these invisible creatures manifest themselves. Think of Mary getting a message from Gabriel, right? You, th- you think of the shepherds out in the fields and the heavenly host, the whole sky is full of angels. Right? You think of Elijah and Elisha, his, his servant. The, they're, they're outnumbered by thousands and thousands and thousands, and Elisha's just chilling. And Elijah, or Elish, Eli, ugh, I'm sorry guys. Elisha is chilling, and El, did I say it right? Elijah is chilling, Elisha is worried. Okay. And Elijah's like, what are you worried about, bro? Like, there's more with us than with them. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he says, Lord, open his eyes. And literally, the entire mountain is not only full of warriors, but also some kind of spirit animals, horses, ready for battle, chariots, warriors that were invisible just a moment before. Okay? Now, if the spirits that are in here, maybe, would show themselves, didn't happen, that would be them manifesting themselves. And here, what John is saying is, the author of life himself has manifested himself to us. And he's, he's almost blown away by this. He's like, I, I can't believe it, that God himself, the word of life, eternal life, has shown himself to me. And I've seen him with my eyes. I've handled him with my hands. I've heard his words with my own ears. And now what I'm doing with this letter is I am proclaiming him. I am testifying. I'm being a witness that you might experience him too. And so the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify that. So think about being in a court. If you're a witness in a crime and you get subpoenaed to court, you are to testify to what? To what you've seen, to what you've heard, and to what you've experienced. This is what John is saying. I'm telling you what I've seen with my own eyes, what I've handled with my own hands, and what I've heard with my own ears. I am an eyewitness to the eternal life becoming man. The creator become creation. Light become a human being. And I'm here to testify to you and proclaim to you Not just eternal life that you can have in his name, but I am here to proclaim to you the eternal life. Okay? What what does that mean? What does the eternal life mean? Well, I think it, it is pointing to the fact that life itself is all wrapped up in Jesus himself. Now, we live in a very technologically saturated age, and it's very hard for us to get away from a screen at all. You know this, right? Okay. But there are occasions where you can break away from the screens and you can break away from the noise and what you will experience is life all over the place. So I have, I have a, a deck off of my, my back kitchen and if I sit out there without distraction, no music playing, no dogs barking, it would be a miracle. No screens buzzing, you know, no, no notifications. What I do is I peer out into like the horizon line and all I can hear and see is life. 
Like I said to Megan the other day, have you noticed all the dragonflies? Like, where are all these dragonflies coming from? And she's like, oh, they're here all the time. I'm like, well, I'm now noticing them. Like bats and bugs and chirping crickets and locusts and cicadas. And we often don't notice them, but there's life all around us all the time. And there's invisible life in the form of bacteria and germs and viruses. And there's macro life happening out in the distant galaxies. Okay? And here, John is saying, that life, the author of all that life, man, I hugged him with my own arms. I ate with him. He broiled me fish, and I ate it. He, he, he's blown away. And he's like, I want you, dear reader, to experience him as I have. And that's why I'm testifying to you and I'm proclaiming to you the eternal life. And so eternal, it means no beginning and it means no end. Now this is a mystery for us human beings. How can, a, how can something have always existed? And how can something always exist? Well, that's a little easier for us to imagine because we have existence, but we also have had a beginning, right? We celebrate our birthdays every year. At, we're celebrating our beginning and how many years since our beginning. But God never had a beginning. And we don't even have a category for that because everything we know has a beginning. But before the beginning, there was eternal life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit until the day when God created the heavens and the earth. But prior to that day, God always existed. Now, maybe someday in our glorified state, when we have a glorified mind, we'll be able to comprehend eternity. I think that might be possible. But for now, we have no idea what two arrows going east to west and never having an end point, we, we just can't even imagine that because we don't have categories. Okay? The, the iPhone breaks, uh, you know, the food gets eaten and the dinner's over, uh, the couch wears out, the oil needs changed. All we know is something breaking down and ceasing to exist, right? New pains show up in your body and where you were once healthy, the health is gone. But God always was and always will be. And he became one of us. It's amazing. He says, I proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, Jesus died, okay? We know this. This is what the cross is all about. This is what Easter is all about. But Easter is more than just Jesus died. It's Jesus rose, Jesus is alive. And so though he tasted death, he swallowed up darkness after it swallowed him up. And now he bursts out of the grave and he lives forevermore in resurrected life. Okay? Jesus is the first human being with a resurrected body. And even now he is in heaven as a glorified human being. Yet he is separate from us in that he is both God and man. When we are resurrected, we will be glorified man, as in mankind, man and woman, okay? Jesus will be set apart as the God-man, the only God-man. 
But right now, if you were able to go into heaven in this moment, wherever it is, whether it's a dimensional thing and you just slide through the wormhole, or if you travel beyond our galaxy, wherever it is, you could touch Jesus physically if a spirit can touch physicality. Right? Because if you die, sadly, tonight, your body stays here, but your spirit or your soul returns to the Lord who gave it, according to Ecclesiastes 3. Okay? The body returns to the earth or the dust from which it was made, but the spirit returns to the Lord who gave it. Jesus is physically alive right now, and he is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep, or he is the first one that is the guarantee and the promise of all of our future resurrected bodies. And there is a life coming, friends, for those who are in Jesus. This is uh, union with Christ, Romans 6. We're united to him in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. We do not have to fear death because death for us is a door to eternal life. And that eternal life is what is in the Son, and we are in the Son. Okay, let me unpack that for just a moment. I know that's kind of abstract. When you exercise faith in Jesus Christ, when you acknowledge that you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, and you turn from your sin and you ask for the mercy of God, God forgives you. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. In that moment, God the Father, by the Spirit, places you into Christ. If you want an image, think about uh, dunking something into water and the water is surrounding it, okay? Think of location. You are in this room right now. You are in Christ. Now, what that means, truthfully and theologically, is this. What is true of Jesus is now true of you. As God the Father said about his son, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now you, in Christ, get that status, This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We're in Christ, and so we get those benefits that Christ has. As Christ never sinned negatively, but positively, always loved 100% of the time, 100% of his days, that is ours. We in Christ, it's as if we've never sinned. It's as if we've always obeyed. We're in Christ. As Jesus was on the cross suffering for sin, not his sin, your sin, my sin. As he was buried, who was buried with him according to Romans 6? We who believe, we are buried. And then as he is resurrected, we are resurrected. And now, listen, friends, you tonight, if you're in Christ, are literally living the beginning stage of eternal life right now. We always think about once death hits, then eternal life begins. You are living the very first stage of eternal life right now if you are a Christian. You are going to last forever in the presence of Jesus if you are in him. How do we get in Christ? Hey, you want to think of a door analogy? Jesus himself said, I am the door. If anyone comes through me, He will find pasture. It's in John 10, talking about the sheep, uh, the gate and the sheep and the door. Um, So you need a key to get into this locked door. And on the other side of the door is eternal life. It's life everlasting with God. How do you get in? 
You got to go in through Christ, who is the door and who holds the keys, as he said, to death and Hades themselves. Uh, death, we know that. Hades is the Greek concept of the underworld, the abode of the dead, Sheol in the Old Testament. Okay? Jesus has the key to unlock and put people in and unlock and bring people out. And he has the key for you to get into heaven. Who is the key? Who? Himself. And so you must go through Christ, who is eternal life, look, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Okay? Not you can have eternal life, but Jesus is the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. Now think about that. John here is personifying eternal life as Jesus himself, and that's right, because Jesus always existed, and he is the one who gifts to us this life everlasting. And so as bad as your days are, and some days are really bad, okay, you know the eternal life, without suffering, without pain, without depression, without broken relationships, without evil, without sinners, and without sin within. Friends, we're headed there. And so there's always hope out ahead of you, even on your worst days, always. The Christian should never lose hope. And sometimes you do lose hope, and what do you do? You call somebody and you borrow some of their hope. You're like, yo, I'm feeling hopeless. Speak truth to me. I, want, I need some of your hope. Please. And this is in part what the church does. The church is full of other brothers and sisters that when you are doing terrible, they might not be doing as terrible. And so you get some of their gospel hope. They give you a cold drink of water when you're parched and thirsty spiritually. This is what the church is supposed to do. Okay? And here, John says, I proclaim to you this life that is eternal, that is yours, and we are in him. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So, 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 in order that, this is why, okay? What is the reason? That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too, may have fellowship with us. Okay? Why is John writing this letter? Why is John testifying to what he has seen and heard and experienced? So that you too, you out there, you too, might have fellowship with us. Now look, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son. Let's think about this resurrection life, eternal life, and for us to be joined to this eternal life and to be in fellowship with this eternal life. Okay, there are many places we could go. I just want to look at, at like two of them. Okay, and, and we're going to be going into John a lot because 1 John is an extension of John. Okay, most scholars think John was written first, 1 John written much later. Okay, so this is a story about Jesus' friend who has died. His name is Lazarus. Okay, Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Jesus purposefully stays back 
four days after getting news that Lazarus is deathly ill. And so he waits four days. Why? Because he wants him to die. And that's the truth. But when Jesus arrives, he arrives at the funeral. Okay? And, and everyone's a mess. And I want you to listen to the conversation that he has with Martha. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, you think about this. Martha did not have any of the New Testament. Jesus had not risen from the dead yet. And so resurrection was not this pervasive theological category, yet Martha here has a good theology of resurrection, doesn't she? Look, I know he's going to rise one day at the great resurrection on the last day. And amazingly, if you go back even to the book of Job, Job talks about seeing God after death in the flesh. Okay? And so the, the resurrection, the idea of, of resurrected life is not unfamiliar to an old covenant believer. It was not. Okay? But we have so much greater information categories, understanding. And so Martha is thinking, yeah, last day, resurrection, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe he's going to rise at the last day, but Jesus is not thinking the last day here. He's like, no, he's going to rise in a few minutes. Jesus said to her, but listen to this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And in addition, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And so here, resurrection life is not just in Jesus, he doesn't just give resurrection life. What does he say? I am the resurrection and the life. Here's what he's saying, friends. Resurrection itself, life itself, in essence, comes from me. Without me, God, no life. Without me, no movement. Without me, no being. Remember Paul, Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. When Jesus, by the word of his power, calls forth, live from death, both spiritually and physically, obedience happens. Spiritual life happens. Physical life happens. And Jesus is saying, resurrection and I are one in the same. I call forth the resurrection. I don't just experience it. It finds its power and essence in me. I am the resurrection and the life. And this is what John is saying. He's saying 
and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Timothy, again, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Okay? Now, let me just pause for one more second. Okay? In the United States of America, in Britain, in Canada, and in the developed West, we have this drilled into us from elementary school that there are such things as the laws of nature, and then there is you with ultimate sovereignty and autonomy. The Bible knows nothing of that, except that God is behind all the laws of nature, and God is more sovereign than you. God is, so can you even call forth a hurricane to go back into the ocean when it's about to smash Florida, Georgia, South Carolina? North? No, you can't, you can't speak to the wind and waves and they obey you. Yet Jesus did it, proclaiming that he is the Lord of nature. Okay? And so here, God himself gives life to all things. Gravity doesn't work without God behind gravity. Gravity is a secondary cause. What is the primary cause of gravity? God. How does the, the hydrological cycle work? Just on its own. You know, it, it, it's self-existent. It's eternal. No, it works because of God behind it. How does photosynthesis occur? Well, you know, it's just, it's natural. It's naturally occurring. It never had a beginning and it will never have an end. No, God is behind all of it. In him, all things, life, movement, being itself. And so for Christians, friends, we need to think about God in everything. And I don't mean God in everything in the pagan sense. I mean one circle, God, everything in the second circle dependent on the first circle. Without him, the second circle does not exist. The very chair you're sitting on, without God upholding its molecules, turns into a puddle of atoms. That's what I'm saying. Right? The very coffee you drink in the morning, Jesus is like, it's got my signature all over that baby. Why are you drinking Folgers? I made way better stuff than that. <laughs> if you drink Folgers, I love you, and if I come to your house, I will drink it without complaining, I swear. Okay? Just don't feed me Dunkin' Donuts. I'm kidding. I'll drink that too without complaining. And so here, he gives life to all things. Okay, just let that land on you. Here's what we do when we read the Bible. We just read past that line like, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. No, notice it, think about it, sit in it, think about the implications. Okay? I am saying words with multiple letters syllabalized, you're hearing it and yet you're understanding it without even thinking about understanding it. It's just happening. How do you explain that? God created language and the ear and the brain to pick it up and, and think at the speed of, of unconsciousness, really. If you're conscious about your own thinking, you're no longer paying attention. I mean, that's all God, friends gives life to all things, all things. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, 
who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, and he's, and he's encouraging Timothy to, to also make the good confession, and don't waver, and, and he's encouraging him. I pulled this in to show God gives life to all things. He's behind everything, friends. Okay? So we should not divorce in our thinking anything from God himself. Nothing. You like shrimp cocktail? God. You like coconut water? Me too. God. Some of you are like, you don't know what you're missing. The little chunks floating in there, it's delicious. It's great. All right. Let's talk about John 14 now, okay? John 14 takes place in the upper room during the Last Supper. The upper room discourse is what it's called. And we're breaking into this private conversation during the last Passover Jesus is going to share with his disciples, and he is encouraging them because he's saying, look, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. In fact, tonight, I'm going to go to the garden. I'm going to be betrayed. And then I'm going to go to the, to the high priest and Herod. And then I'm going to go to the Romans. And then I'm going to be hoisted up on a cross. That's all going down within the next two days. You guys have no clue this is about to happen. And he's trying to ease them into this reality that is about to face them. They're about to lose their Lord. So he encourages them and he says, look, I I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. So he's talking about his death, and he's talking about then uh, 40 days later, after his death and resurrection, he is going to ascend, okay? The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. They won't. You will. Why? Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me. Remember, we talked about that location thing, that, that union Okay, so Jesus is saying, I am in the Father. I am united to the Father. That's the mystery of the Trinity. But here, he says, and you in me. And so in some sense, we are united to the Father through the Son. And we know by the Spirit, he'll show up later. And that day, you will know that I am in the Father and my Father, and you in me and I in you. Who's the I in you? That's the Spirit. Okay? So the whole Trinity shows up here in verse 20 of John 14. He said, I am in the Father, the Father's in me, I am in you, and how is he in us? He's in us by his Spirit. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas not Iscariot, not the one who betrayed him, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him. Now listen, and we will come to him, and what will happen? And make our home with him. Okay, The Father will come, I will come, and we will make our home with who? With the one who is Jesus' disciple. The one who is keeping the commandments. Now, now, for some of you, you have a religion operating system, okay? it's, It's inevitable, and so I have to say this. 
When you look at verse 21, look at it with me. See it? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Now, what is more important, the keeping of commandments or the loving of Jesus? Some of you were like, hmm, is that a trick question? But I think Brett's got it. The answer is yes. They're both important because one displays the other. But we are not commanded in the greatest commandment to keep all my laws with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and make sure you pay attention to the Pentateuch with all your heart. No, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The love will be proved by the outworking of God in you by doing good, keeping Jesus' commandments. You remember last week, let's, let's think back to last week for one minute. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. We are saved by grace through faith unto good works. Verse 10, good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. In that order, saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, to something, good works. But they're all wrapped up together. So if you say, I am saved by grace, I have faith in Jesus, yet your life has no demonstration of keeping Jesus' commandments, friends, check your profession. Check your profession. That's all. But here, Jesus is saying, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it's he who loves me. In other words, you prove your love for God by doing what he says. Okay? So, so let's imagine this for a second. You have a child. Okay? And you tell your child, hey, hey, buddy, go clean your room. Okay? And he's like, Dad, I just love you. I'm going to clean my room because I love you and I respect your words. And, and you come back an hour later and the room is just a disaster and he's laying there on his iPhone. Better not, parents. <laughs> just kidding. He's laying there and the, and the room's untouched. Son, I, I thought I told you to clean your room. Yeah, but I told you I loved you, and that should be enough. You'd be like, yo, the way you're acting right now is not demonstrating any kind of love or respect for me. Like, Dad, I just love you. Just go away and, and know I love you. <laughs> you're going to be like, yo, do you, want a, do you want a beat down right now? Like, you're not manifesting love or respect. You're directly disobeying my commandments. Yeah, but I told you, Dad. I love you, so just close the door on your way out. Now, you see, that's a stupid human illustration, but the idea resonates with God. We can't say, God, I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then when he says do something, you're like, eh. Right? No, your direct disobedience does not communicate love. It communicates rebellion and disobedience and the opposite of love. Now, I disobey all the time, so I'm not going to be up here pretending I'm the righteous example all of you should follow. No. But when I do disobey, and it's clear to me, and the Spirit convicts me, I am grieved by my sin, and I desire repentance. I think if I took a vote right now and said, how many of you would stop sinning right now and just not sin the rest of your life if you could? I think all your hands would go up. Right? If you're a true believer, you don't love sin anymore. 
Yeah, it has an attraction to you still. That's why you're temptable. But you don't love it the way you did before the life of God entered you, the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit enables you to live out this eternal life that's in you. God himself in you. Eternal life. It lives out of you. Now, for most of us, it is way too slow to our liking. They're like, God, speed it up. Let's get some 5G going here, God. And he's like, no, think acorn and oak tree. That's the way I work. Slow, steady, solid, not just years, decades. Upon decades. Upon decades. That's how I work. I'm building patience. I'm building character. I'm building oaks of righteousness here. Not sandcastles. And so that's what God's in the business of doing with you. But we must, if you will, co-operate with him and obey as he says obey. Not so that he will love us, but because we love him as a response to his love for us. You get it? Let's not get it backwards. God's not saying, all my love is available for you if you would just keep my commands. No, you display your love for God by keeping his commands. And you display your non-love for God by not keeping his commands. That's as simple as it is. And we're not saved by keeping commands. We're saved by grace, through faith, unto good works. And so Jesus is here in the upper room saying, look, verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him, okay? And so this making of a home with him is an allusion to the Holy Spirit coming to live inside the believer, and the Holy Spirit is so tied to Jesus and so tied to the Father, it's as if the Trinity is living inside of you as if you were his home, God's home. And is this not what Paul says in Corinthians? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. If God lives in you, live for him. We will come and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. And so verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, in order that, you too may have fellowship with us, with the apostles, with the eyewitnesses. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, and we are writing these things so that... Okay, now, now, when you see us so that, this is a purpose statement. Okay? Why are you writing these things, John? Well, so that our joy may be complete. Now, notice the R in verse 3. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So here, the hour is our, like ours and John's. John wants us to have fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and us together to have complete joy. Now, 
For most of us, we have a skewed view of what biblical joy is, okay? Because we know what it's like, like on your birthday, to get the gift you've been hoping for, right? We, we know what it's like, if you're a dog person, to, to get a new puppy, like just for the first couple hours, and then it starts tearing everything up. And then you're like regretting your decision, right? If you're a cat person, a brand new kitty, it's so fluffy and cute and you can't contain the cuddles, right? It, it, that's happiness. And it's very circumstantial, right? You're, you're at your favorite meal, you're eating, and you're just like, bless the Lord, oh my soul, right? right? And, and, and you're happy because of what's happening. This is beyond that. This is a higher level. This is you being able to be satisfied in God, having soul rest when chaos and everything around you is crumbling. It says that the joy here has nothing to do with your circumstances. In fact, it's often counter to your circumstances. From the outside looking in, you should be a wreck right now. How are you holding up? How are you so confident? How are you even happy to a degree? How is that possible? And John would tell us, because I have fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit, and I'm in a fellowship of saints that span the ages. And I know that out ahead of me, beyond this suffering, beyond this valley of the shadow of death, beyond the darkness, there is a light that will grow ever bigger until it swallows all the darkness. That's my future. That's where I'm headed. And that's how I can be now in this present darkness and have joy because I know the end. And friends, to be able to look forward into the future and pull back that goodness into the present, that's called hope and that's called faith. And that's what we Christians need to get good at. But friends, everything in the culture right now is screaming the opposite. Now, 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 focus on the now, focus on your feelings, look inside, what's going on in the moment? And Christians have always been called, no, you think beyond the now to the eternal. We look to the things which are unseen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are unseen are eternal. And if you can have an eternal perspective, you can go into that eternal future for you, that future joy, if you will, and you can pull back into the present that hope, and there's a light in the middle of the darkness. And not just that, but friends, if we believe what this, these four verses are saying, God is literally with you in the middle of the mess. I will not leave you as orphans, John 14. I will come and make my home with you, with the Father and the Spirit. Therefore, whatever you're going through, if you're a Christian, who is going through it with you? God. That should bring tremendous hope into your situation. And again, sometimes we feel so hopeless, we do need to call on other people. Hey, speak some hope into my life. Speak some gospel into my life. Let me borrow some of your encouragement because mine is super low. And if you're there, friends, that's what the church is for. That's what we're supposed to do with each other. Did not the writer to Hebrews say, 
Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but rather encourage one another daily, daily, as you see the day approaching with the capital D, Judgment Day. And so, therefore, it is our practice to be encouraging one another. That's what we're supposed to do. Okay. Last verse, and we're done. John 10.10. Jesus, I think, typifying a type of Satan here as the thief. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's what the thief does. And Satan and demons are the ultimate thieves. Their only intention is to steal and to kill and to destroy. But me, I came. And John 10 is that great shepherd. I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice, and I know them. Okay? I came that they, my sheep, might have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. Does not mean abundantly in the sense of my bank account just continues to grow, and the model of my car just continues to get newer, and the price tag on my clothes just continues to go up, and my health just continues to, no, it's not at all what that means. In fact, often it means the opposite. Okay? And if you have that view of God, that if I just stick close to God, everything worldly, tangible, physical will get better, you have a wrong view of Christianity. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's what's promised. But take heart because I've overcome the world. Okay? Now, does that mean you can't get a new car? You can't have semi-expensive clothes? Semi. I don't want to see anyone with Gucci in here. I'm going to reprimand you. That's church discipline stuff right there. Right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just go to Goodwill. There's full of Gucci. You find it everywhere. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, it doesn't mean that. What I'm saying is there's a version of Christianity that will take a verse like this and say, if you will just come to God, he will bless you to the degree where you can't even imagine. And when we hear bless, we think stock rising, gold coins, you know, lavish meals, like walk-in closets. And and that's a, a symptom of living in 2023 in the United States. But relational abundance is you have God as your father, Jesus as your big brother, the spirit living inside you, and they promise to never leave you or forsake you. And that is actually what real abundant life is. And you are promised that. And so we will celebrate that means right now by taking communion together. We can have this relational wealth, this relational beauty with God because of the body broken and the blood shed of Jesus, his son. And so we together remember and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, even now.